in Psalm 6, starting in verse 1 this morning. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes take, waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, Westside. We are glad that you're here today as we are continuing in our summer series, um, Summer in the Psalms. And we're just going to dive right in today. We've got a pretty big topic, and so here we go. Um, the year was 1542, and this man, St. John of the Cross, was born. Um, he's a very influential figure throughout church history. And during the Protestant Reformation, uh, what took place is the global church was undergoing really purifying and there was a reformation to get back to the centrality of the scriptures and the centrality of that we are uh, saved by grace through faith. And the year was 1577, and St. John was arrested for preaching this good news. And he was arrested and put in to a prison cell for nine months. It was windowless. And it was six by ten feet, and it was so low that he couldn't stand up all the way. The stone cell was unheated in winter and unventilated in the summer. He was malnourished, he was beaten daily, and constantly sick. For nine months he experienced this agony. While he was in there, he wrote two of probably some of the most famous poems that have ever been written in Christendom. And one of them was entitled, The Dark Night of the Soul. The Dark Night of the Soul. It's a very, very famous phrase that has made its way into secular literature. And um, I would encourage you to look it up and read it. And what The Dark Night of the Soul is about is the darkness and the depths of his heart and his mind that he was experiencing. And James Montgomery Boyce says this, What is the dark night of the soul? It is a state of intense spiritual anguish in which the struggling, despairing believer feels he or she is abandoned by God. That is the dark night of the soul. And when we look at Psalm chapter 6, what we see is David experiencing the dark night of the soul. There's a lot of terms for this. Depression, 
despair, being down, darkness. If there's one thing I know, and especially in light of COVID and everything else that has been taking place, this is a big deal that has been happening. Um, if you talk to anybody, anybody in the medical profession, COVID is a big deal right now, but mental health is a crisis that is taking place. And one thing that I would like to do is I would just like to pause right here before we jump in and acknowledge something. Number one, I think the church historically has done a very poor job about talking about these things. Um, and number two, I think that the church is actually overall not very well equipped to deal with some of these things, because here's why. We believe at Westside that you are mind, body, and soul. And all of those things matter. The mind, the body, and the soul interact with each other. And when one thing is off, you as an individual, as a whole, can be thrown off. And one of the things that I've learned in my years of pastoring and some of the best wisdom that I have ever received is that whenever I feel ill-equipped for something, even like we're going to talk about today, we as a church need to reference and refer people to medical professionals at times. And so one of the things I would encourage you to do is there is the National Mental Health Hotline. And, and today, as you hear me talk, if you're somebody who is close to dealing with some very serious issues, please, we would reference you and refer you to call and to seek medical help if you do need those things. Listen, we as Christians are not above and we are not beyond these things, okay? But here's one thing that I do know. Christians are not exempt from emotional and spiritual distress. We are not exempt from those things. And actually, the more and more that I talk with people and the more and more that I've been having conversations in the past year, I don't think this is a subject that some of us are dealing with. I think this is the subject. I think when it comes to marriages, when it comes to wives talking about what their husbands are going through, having men share in our groups, having women talk about what's going on in their lives. Listen, I firmly believe that today, through the good news of Jesus Christ and through the power of His Holy Spirit, I believe there are people that are suffering in bondage, and I believe today that we can find freedom. Amen? We're going somewhere today, and I just want us to press in, and I want us to lean in. But one of the things that I think is helpful is we don't just arrive in a moment of deep depression. If you talk to anybody, that, that it is a journey and that it is a process. And actually, when we look at Psalm 6, we know a little bit of the background that's been taking place. David is the author. And David has actually had um, an intense family conflict. He's on the run from his son Absalom. He's um, in a cave. There's all types of things that are going on. David himself has experienced a process. And what I want to look at, this comes from the Association of Biblical Counselors, and what it is is the development of what is known as spiritually rooted depression. Now, in just a moment, we're going to talk about a number of causes. Like I said, we are mind, body, and soul. I don't believe that it's just one thing. I believe that it can be a cause of many things. 
But if we can look at what this process is, you can ask yourself, where am I on this list? If I'm close to this or if I'm close to that, listen, you can't know where you're going until you know where you are. You have to know where you're at in this process. And so the first thing is this. It starts with disappointment. It always starts with disappointment. We have certain types of expectations, and when those expectations aren't met, we experience disappointment. And so that can be marriage, that can be a relationship, that can be with a job. You thought that it was going to be this, and now six months later, this is what you're experiencing, and there's a little bit of disappointment there. But disappointment always leads to discontentment. And so now, you know, let's say that you're in the relationship and you thought that it was going to be this way. You've been disappointed by those expectations not being met. And now you're experiencing discontentment. Now you start to look around and you go, man, what if this, what if I had this, or what if I worked here, or what if I was married to this person, or, you know, I mean, there's, now you're starting to go, man, what else What else is there? And then things really start to set in. And then if this continues down the path, it inevitably leads to discouragement. The word discouragement, dis is the prefix, it literally means to take courage out of someone. Encouragement means to put courage into someone. So now you've had these expectations. They haven't been met. And now you're discontent and you're looking around and now you're starting to ask questions. Is it always going to be this way? Is this my life now? And now discouragement starts to set in and nothing seems to change your mood Oftentimes, this is where addictions come in and we reach for substances or certain things to help us cope and to change our mood. We've had trouble sleeping because of the discontentment. And so now one drink has turned into five drinks before bed or now you've been visiting this website and now that what you're doing is you're trying to survive. You're trying to cope at this point. And then the last stage is despair. Despair is a very dangerous place to be. Despair or despondency is when now you don't respond in conversations. You don't share what's going on now. You are numb. And you are numb even to life. Intrusive thoughts start making their way in. And there is what St. John said, a dark night of the soul. This is what it looks like and how we arrive. And that's what I believe is happening to David in Psalm 6. So I would just ask, um, just currently right now, just applying this sermon to your life, where are you? If you're experiencing a darkness in your life, a downness, a depression... What, where are you on this? And who can you be processing these things with? But as I said, there's, there's a number of complexities when it comes to this issue. Um, I like what Tim Keller says. He calls it the complex core of depression. 
And, and, and when we look at Psalm chapter 6, I mean, guys, listen to these words that David is saying. Look in uh, verse 2. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Verse 3, my soul is also greatly troubled. Look at verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Listen to me. If you went in and said that to your doctor, that is a sign of clinical depression. I mean, I mean, that is real stuff that's going on in David's life. David is in what St. John said, the dark night of the soul. And there's a number of things that are going on in David's life that I think can help us maybe address what's the core of what's going on in my life. And again, it's complex. I'm not saying that it's just one thing. I'm saying that it can be a mirage of many of things. The first question to ask is this. Um, is this physical? When David says there uh, in verse 2, for my bones are troubled. Anytime that that's used in the scriptures, a lot of scholars would agree that David is probably experiencing a physical sickness in his life. Now listen, if it is true that stress in the mind reveals itself in the body, that the mind, when it undergoes suffering and stress, can show itself in the body, then it is also true that when the body is suffering, that it can affect the mind. And anytime sickness or suffering or cancer enter into our lives, it can affect our emotions greatly. So is this physical? Is the core of what's going on in my life something that I need to seek medical attention with? The second thing is this. Is this relational? Is this relational? Psalms 3, 4, 5, and 6 are written by David, and most scholars believe it's when what's going on with the discord with his son, Absalom. And we learned about this a few weeks ago. David's son, Absalom, began to rebel against his father, and he desired his father's position. So there was turmoil in the family, and then Absalom begins to sow discord in all of Israel. And it says that when people would go to see David and ask him things, um, Absalom set up shop right outside David's throne. And he would say, hey, 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 um, are you needing help with this? Well, why don't you come talk to me? Because you know King David, he's got this going on in his life. And David started experiencing serious relational conflict. Is that true for some of you? Is there family conflict with your mother, your father, your in-laws, your spouse? Listen, anytime there's relational suffering, you better believe that our emotions are involved in that. I mean, anytime, I mean, it, it's almost like as soon as you wake up, you think about that conflict. It's subconsciously going on all day in your mind. And then you see and you pass that person as you're driving or you see it when you're getting groceries or on social and it consumes your life. Is it relational or how about the third thing? Is it moral? Um, look at what David says in verse one. Oh, Lord, 
Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Why would David say that? Well, David's experiencing this suffering, whether it be sickness or whatever, and what he's asking God is, God, is this because of something that I've done? Now, I need to be careful here. Because what we know, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that was a good spot for an amen, okay? I'm going to go back and do that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to me. God does not punish Christians, okay? That happened to Jesus on the cross in our place. There are therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but please listen to me. It does not say there is therefore now no consequences for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you know anything about what's happening in David's life, David committed a grievous sin that ripped his family apart. God literally said through the prophet Nathan, because you have slept with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, and done these things, the sword will never leave your house. And what he meant was this, that there's division because of the decision that you chose to make, David. These are real consequences. And what David is asking is, are these the consequences of the choice that I have made? I've told you this story before. I'll never forget having a conversation with a guy who had been arrested the night before for driving under the influence. It was his third DWI, wrapped his car around a telephone pole, and I'll never forget what he said. I can't believe God is doing this to me in my life. And I looked at him and said, look at me, you can never say that again. You drank 14 beers and drove your car. God has nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with this. this if anything, God spared your life in light of that. And oftentimes it takes a large amount of self-reflection to ask ourselves, is this the consequence of some decisions that I've made? Is this moral? And then the last one is this. Is this spiritual? Look at what David says there in verse 3. My soul, my soul is greatly troubled. The word soul is really interesting um, in the Bible. What we're going to see in just a minute, soul and heart are, are interchangeable. Um, the soul, listen to me, the soul, maybe you're a non-Christian and, and maybe you're somebody just sort of peeking over the fence and you're like, a lot of times people talk about soul. Like, what even is that, man? Can we scientifically prove? Listen, your soul is that immaterial part of you that makes you you. It is the never-dying aspect. It is the eternal part of you that has been given by God. And you better believe that we are made of mind, body, and soul. And I think oftentimes Christians and human beings in general bypass the spiritual aspect of things that are taking place in your life. You better believe if you are a man trying to lead your family, pray with your wife, raise those kids in the way of Jesus, read your Bible, and you feel like there is an attack on your life, the answer is yes, there is. 
The same is true for you as a woman because there is an enemy and there is opposition in our lives. There is a spiritual aspect to these things. So I think as we look at Psalm 6, there could be some core issues that some of us are experiencing that David was experiencing. And listen, if you're going through the dark night of soul in this season in your life, there are two types of people that you need to be very cautious around, okay? I'm going to offend probably everybody in the room, but welcome to West Side. We're real glad you're here, okay? Um, the first type of person is this. You need to guard yourself from the just take a pill person. Okay, listen, please, please don't miss this. Look up here and look at me. Praise be to God for modern medicine. Praise be to God for that. Like I said, we are mind, body, soul. Some of us in this room suffer from a thyroid problem or a chemical imbalance, which then results in hormones and emotions becoming haywire and all of those things. Listen, those are real physical problems that through the common grace of medicine that we can seek help and listen, some modern medicine has changed people's lives for better, for the good. But, but, if you are somebody who is passive, you are not seeking help, you are not living in community, you are not seeking physical activity, you are not being active trying to get out of this, and you think that there is just a pill that is going to solve all of your problems, listen, I'm here to tell you that's not the answer. It's not the answer. And then the second person is this. You need to guard yourself from the just pray it away person. From the person who's like, well, just pray harder and just try harder. And here, I'm going to give you some Bible verses because of what I just said. Because we are mind, body, and soul. Hey, listen, it's complex. It's not as easy as we think it is. But it is something that all of us are experiencing. And what we've been learning through the book of Psalms is that the emotional life of a believer is a big deal. We're seeing that in the very words that we read. Hey, here's something cool. Um, through a church member who has some extended family that attends another church in town, a fellowship, a General Baptist church there north of town, they said, hey, did you know that fellowship is studying the book of Psalms as well? I was like, dude, that's so awesome. I love Byron Beck. He's, uh, they were one of our churches of the month, and we prayed for them. And they said, hey, I really think that you would like Byron's last sermon. And so I went online, and I actually listened to his sermon, and it was about emotional health, and it was phenomenal. I highly, highly recommend it to you. And yes, I am a pastor in a town that's recommending another sermon of another pastor in town because I could give a rip about trying to build my own kingdom, okay? So go check out Fellowship, and you might want to go there instead of here, and for some of you, I'll help pack your bags, okay? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> kidding, okay? I'm kidding. But listen, one of the things that Byron did in his sermon is he used the illustration that our emotions are like a river. And he said, think about something like current river. If, if, if you're floating down current river and you're just passive, you're just experiencing floating down the river, you're not mindful of anything that's taking place, what's going to happen? 
Um, it's not going to go well for you, okay? For some of us who've grown up in this area, Current River is very dangerous. Nobody gets on the river and just lets the river take them and becomes passive. He says when you're on the river, you allow the river to you know, float and take you to your destinations, but you also swim, you guard yourself, and you guide yourself on the river. I thought that is a phenomenal illustration of our emotional life. We are not, listen, here's what I'm trying to say. Your emotions are not your enemy. Your emotions need to be engaged. They have to be engaged. You can't just go with the flow. You will end up in a very dangerous place. And I love what Solomon says in the book of Proverbs. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Keep your heart. Watch over it. Like I said, the heart and soul in the scriptures is the seat of emotions. It's where how we make decisions, how we view the world, it's where all of that comes from. Now, with all of that as sort of a background and a context. And we look at Psalm chapter 6 and we see the dark night of the soul. I think there is an error that is made. The primary error is we come into this with expectations of, Pastor Jason, give me six things that I can do starting today that will make me feel better and that will help me conquer and get out of this, okay? Now, I do think there is a way out. I do think there is a way out. But what if, what, well, listen, here's the big idea. Depression doesn't have to define you. Can I just pause right there? For some of you, that is beautiful news. It doesn't have to define you. Depression can actually deepen your relationship with God. It doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to be the every day of your life. It doesn't have to be who you are. And some of you are not suffering from this, but you are in a family who has a family member that suffers from this, and then you know the whole family suffers from this. And you need to know that this doesn't have to define your family. You don't have to live in constant fear and anxiety is am I going to have a spell and am I going to enter into this season? It doesn't have to define you. I think that what we see in the book of Psalms is that it can actually deepen your relationship. Another reason and another evidence of this is looking at past saints. One of the things that I love to do is, is I love to read biographies about people. I'm just fascinated about people, but particularly Christian biographies, because I love to see how other people walked with the Lord and how other people dealt with things in their life. And one thing you will find if you just do a cursory reading of uh, Christian history is that depression and the dark night of the soul, not just through people in the Bible, but through all of Christian history, has plagued many Christians, and none of them more probably than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was known as sort of the prince of preachers. He's one of my favorite um, Christian theologians. He's greatly impacted my life, but he suffered greatly from depression in his life. 
One time he was preaching with no microphones, no anything, to an audience of 15,000 people at the Crystal Palace there in London. One of his defactors and people who didn't like him from the back of the room yelled, fire. And when they yelled fire, there was a stampede of people. 20 people were injured and five people died because of the experience. Spurgeon, according to his wife, Susan, didn't get out of bed for two weeks. Susan said that he was never the same from that experience in his life. He suffered greatly in his writings, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, and he talks often about it. But one of the things that he says is this, depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. Oh, that's good news. The very loss of joy and the absence of assurance may be may be accompanied by the greatest advancement in the spiritual life. And Spurgeon would go on to say, in those seasons of darkness, his relationship with God always got stronger. And he loved Jesus more at the end of those seasons than he did at the beginning. But I love this. The presence of Here's what I'm trying to say. The presence of depression does not mean the absence of God. I think that's massively important for us as Christians to understand. Because some of us grew up with an understanding that if I'm sad or if I'm down for an extended period of time, it means number one, I don't have enough faith. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not doing this, that, or the other enough. Or number two, it means that God's mad at me and God's doing this and God has removed himself from my life. No. Those are lies from the pit of hell. And here's what I've come to tell you today from Psalm 6 is that I think there's two key things just real briefly that I want to look at in the passage that I believe, listen, Instead of depression being a dead end for you, I believe it can be a doorway. It's not a dead end. I believe it can be a doorway. But it's also going to involve some of your participation. I don't believe that you can just be passive in this. I believe that you have to be like Jacob and wrestle with God in this. The first thing that I believe that it can do is this, that it can draw you closer to the Lord. If you look at the first um, sort of three verses, David says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. I want you to count the word Lord. O Lord, there's one. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Through the rest of the psalm, David uses the word Lord Eight times in these short verses. Eight times. The word Lord is the personal Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. It's the covenant name of God. Remember that time when Charlton Heston was like, who do I say sent me? And God was like, Moses. God was like, "Um, tell him I am sent you. That's the very covenant name of God. It's the personal name of God. And by the way, um, go back, look at the very first word in the psalm. O Lord. 
It's Lord. The very first thing that David does, the very first thing that he expresses when he's in the dark night of the soul is to run to God. Here's what I'm trying to say. Run to the Lord, not from Him. And listen, everything in you, everything in your being will make you want to run from and not run to. That can be through substances. That can just be through turning your brain off and social media, disconnecting from people, laying in bed, doing all of those things. And in those moments, you need somebody in your life who can come alongside you and help you run to and not from. You know one of the things that Jesus said that in order for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, um, he said that we need to be like a child, childlike faith. Now, not childish, that's a different sermon, okay, right? But childlike. And one of the things that is so beautiful, anytime you see a small child fall or hurt themselves or get scared, what do they do? They want mommy or they want daddy. They run to. And oh, there's that sad moment when they grow up and they don't come to you anymore. And you're like, are you okay? They're like, yeah. And then you go off in a corner and you just cry, right? <laughs> right? Listen, that's what God is like. Listen, God wants you to come to him. Run to the Lord. Don't run from the Lord. I believe that, listen, I believe it can be a doorway and not a dead end. It can draw you closer to if you choose that. The second thing is this. It keeps you dependent on the Lord. So, so if, you're, if you're going to, then it also keeps you dependent. Look at what he says in verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, you will give, who will give you praise? Now, in ancient times, um, they didn't really understand a lot about what happens after you die. And, and, and quite frankly, a lot of us have bought into this hallmarky like um, eternity in heaven. We're going to like sit on a cloud and play a harp. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like that sounds horrible for eternity, okay? That doesn't sound great at all, right? But there was a little bit of an element of mystery. Now they knew to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But here's what David's argument is in verse 5. Put that back up there in verse 5. It is this that somebody who's passed away can no longer praise you anymore. And what David's saying is, I still have some praising to do. I still have a purpose. But here's the key. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me. Why? Why would God save you in this moment, David? For or because the sake of your steadfast Love. If you have a Bible or just in your neighbor's Bible, lean over and circle that word in your neighbor's Bible for them. Make sure that they're awake. Steadfast love. That's a big deal. Um, the word steadfast love is used 25 times in the book of Psalms. Um, this is what it looks like for the two of you who care in the original Hebrew. And it's translated chesed. Okay. And it, it can be translated a number of ways. And when we get steadfast love, that's sort of like an editor's effort. Think about the word steadfast 
means never failing, constantly remaining, nothing can change it, love. That's what it is. It is, well, here's what one scholar said. It's the most frequent word that God uses to describe his relationship with the people of Israel, his people. I mean, think about that. God delivered them from Egypt, and then while Moses is up on the mountain FaceTiming God, they're building a golden calf, and Christians gone wild. I mean, it's horrible stuff that happens, but God continues to use the word chesed, his steadfast love for them. And one scholar put it this way, God's loving kindness is that sure love which will not let Israel go. Not all Israel's persistent waywardness could ever destroy God's love for them. Though Israel be faithless, yet God remains faithful still. This steady, persistent refusal of God to wash away his hands of wayward Israel is essentially the meaning of the Hebrew word which is translated steadfast love. I love it. God's persistent willingness to refuse to wash his hands of Israel. Now, What's cool about this is the New Testament equivalent in translation of this Old Testament word is the word grace. Oh man, I'm preaching now and y'all ain't even letting on, okay? Listen, here's what this means. What David is saying is, I'm in a dark night of the soul. I have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute. If this relationship is based on performance, I am failing. God, I am down. I am downcast. But I know that your love for me is not based upon performance. It is based upon a promise. And that promise is your character, your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness, your patience. That's what God brings to the table. And here's what I'm saying. If you are suffering from this, and if you are in this season of a dark night of the soul, God is not disappointed in you. God is not bothered by you. Some of us really think that God is disappointed with us because we feel this way or because this is going on in our life. I think a beautiful illustration of this is Simone Biles, this has been a hot topic all over the news. Simone is the most decorated gymnast in the history of gymnastics. I mean the GOAT, the greatest of all time. There's not even a second, like ain't nobody close to this girl, okay? She can do some incredible things. And all the news articles and everything around went haywire when she withdrew from the Olympics, um, Simone suffered from what they call the twisties. When she went to go do one of her acts, she got lost in the air. She got disoriented, couldn't find herself. She realized the cause of that was all of the stuff that's going on in her head. I mean, listen, if that's not an illustration for realness, man, I don't know what is. She's, she got disoriented. Some of you were there, disoriented. How did the relationship get here? How did I arrive here in my life? I never planned this. And she withdrew. And everybody went bonkers. Now, more has happened in that story, but everybody just couldn't believe what took place. A few days after she withdrew, she posted this on her social media. 
the outpouring love and support I've received has made me realize I'm more than my accomplishments and gymnastics, which I never truly believed before. Come on, that girl's preaching right there, man. What she's saying She's saying, my whole life, I thought I was as good as the gold medal. That when I looked at my identity and who I was, I looked to those gold medals. And some of you in your life have said, I'm as good as my last name. I'm as good as this. I'm as good as this. This is what defines me. And your whole life, you've never actually experienced grace which is an unearned gift from an unobligated giver, not deserving anything, bringing nothing to the table, being at the worst moment of your life and still experiencing the grace of God. Listen, I'm here to declare to you today, God is not disappointed with his kids. He's not disappointed with his kids. This does not have to define you. I think it can be a doorway. And so in closing, I want to ask this. What, what really is the hope here? What's the tangible hope that we can look to? Because I'm like some of you. I've, I've very much so experienced the dark night of the soul. And despair, meaning like, I just don't see anything else. This is what my life will always be. And feeling utterly hopeless. In verse 4, when it says, my soul is greatly troubled. If you did a Bible study and trace that through the rest of Scripture, it would lead you to John chapter 12, where Jesus quotes those exact same words. Now... Is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Do you know what he's speaking about? The cross. And by the way, do you know what happened at the crucifixion? There were a number of things. It said the earth shook, but then Matthew records this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Listen, here's what I'm saying. Jesus faced the darkest night of the soul so you could have a deeper relationship with the Father. It doesn't have to define you. For a Christian, there is no such thing as hopelessness. For we have the greatest hope, a living hope, as we just all read together, because of what Christ has done for you. So in closing, I just have a few questions to be very, very practical for us today. The first one is this. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the dark night of the soul, where are you at now currently? Listen, you've got to know where you're at in order to know where you're going. We learned last week, whatever you keep trying to hide will never be healed. You can never get there until you're honest where you are now. 
The second question is this. In what ways are you running from the Lord instead of to the Lord? And you know what? We can actually do good things to, to stay busy. Work. I'm going to volunteer here. I'm going to do this. I'm, going to stay, I'm staying busy. I'm staying busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm staying busy. It doesn't just have to be bad things. You can distract yourself with good things because you can't imagine sitting in the quiet. And then the last one is this. Who can you process with in the next three days? Here's your challenge. You have three days. Who can you open up to and process with about these things. And listen, I know like through preaching, there's a connection that happens and you're like, man, it feels like you know exactly what's going on in my life. I wanna process this with you, Pastor. Listen, I would love to do that, but we're a growing church and one of the ways that we will grow in community is if you contact somebody from your community group or your women's table or your men's table and you say, you know what? I'm gonna be honest this time. Here's where I am at. And I want you to know this. You are not alone. And this does not define you. But it's a doorway to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today recognizing that there is some real things that are going on in this room. That some of us in this room are just like David going through the dark night of the soul. God, I pray against the enemy, his workers and their effects. God... The enemy is the father of lies. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But you have come that you may give life and life to the fullest. And God, I pray through the power of the proclamation of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the bondage of the dark night of the soul, this depression, this despair, would be shattered by grace. That it would be shattered by a hesed, a steadfast love. When there's nothing we can bring to the table, when we are at our worst, may we be reminded that you love us most. Holy Spirit, may somebody be so bold in this place today. So bold to say, here's where I'm at. Help me. And watch the power of God work in their life. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.